remain standing as we pray together. Father God, please now come in power and might and anoint the preaching of your word. Lord, without the filling of the Holy Spirit, without the power of the Holy Spirit, this is a dead word. It doesn't have any application to our lives. It doesn't have the power to move us in our hearts, certainly not in our minds. Lord, we, we need you to come and through the power of the Spirit to be the preacher of your own word using the human vessel that you set before your congregation. So, Lord, anoint me as the preacher. Enable me to speak truth and love. And I pray, Lord God, that you would hide me behind the cross, that only Jesus Christ would be exalted, and that no error would be spoken from this pulpit now or ever. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Back uh, during the Pleistocene era, when I was at Duke University, uh, as mastodons roamed the campus, uh, now, when I was a student at Duke Divinity School, um, Stanley Harawas was one of my professors. He's now a world-famous theologian. He was like, the, I didn't know that, you know, Time Magazine, he actually was on Time Magazine's cover a few years ago as, you know, one of the, the number one theologian in the world, I think. And, uh, and who knew that Time Magazine cared about theologians and, and that kind of stuff? But they did, evidently. Uh, Harawas has now gone on to retirement. I think he retired this past year. But when I was at Divinity School, and, uh, and still to this day as I read some of his stuff, um, much of the time, many times, I found myself in profound disagreement with Stanley Harawas. Profound disagreement. But then sometimes I really felt like he nailed things right on the head. And for good or ill, he's actually had a tremendous influence on me as a follower of Jesus Christ and really on how I think about leading the church and serving the church. But one of the things that he really nailed it about was this. He said that the greatest enemy is not of Christianity, the greatest enemy of Christianity is not atheism, it's sentimentality. It's not atheism, it's sentimentality. Now, I'm going to preach a sermon about why sentimentality is bad. And as I preached it in the first service, I came to realize, I need to, why does anybody care? You know, why, why this is bad. What could be bad about sentimentality? Well, first of all, we kind of have to describe it. I want to I define sentimentality for you really quickly. Do you, if I say precious moments, do you, does anybody know what I'm talking about? It's those little cartoons of extremely white people um, and with big eyes and adoring little faces. You know what I'm talking about? It's like they look like they're mutants of some type, but they're supposed, they're supposed to... And there's even... There really is... Somebody gave us when we were young parents, they gave us a precious moments Bible for our children. I, thanks be God, I don't know what ever happened to that. We never used it. I did not want that to be the model of Christianity that my kids thought of. But it's that sappy kind of saccharine, you know, little look. And oh, it's just, oh, isn't that sweet and precious? It's just precious. <laughs> That's what sentimentality is. And, and um, writing in another uh, place, uh, Howard Wass and a, uh, a colleague of his, Will Williman, wrote in a, an article entitled, Ministry is More Than a Helping Profession. They said this, sentimentality is that attitude of being always ready to understand, but not to judge. Without God, without the one whose death on the cross challenges all our good feelings, who stands beyond and over against our human anxieties, all we have left is sentiment a saccharine residue of theism in demise. Sentimentality is the way our unbelief is lived out. 
So without something like the liturgy, like, uh, and so, and I know that, you know, a lot of folks aren't from, you know, we come from traditions where you don't have people dressing up in robes and parading. I love the fact that our, our service opens every week with a parade. So we just had our Advent parade this morning with the procession, you know. Without that kind of liturgical background, though, without some kind of liturgy to protect us, without, for us as Anglicans, the Book of Common Prayer, or for maybe another denomination, some other similar resource to guide the church, our worship too easily is derailed. And it's perverted into the, really, a heresy that equates faith with good feelings and cuddly thoughts. Equates faith with good feelings and cuddly thoughts. In fact, what many people are looking for when they do finally decide that they might give this Christianity thing a try and they show up for worship some Sunday morning, what they're looking for is a lot of times the bread and circuses of cuddly Christianity. Instead, they're shocked when they are confronted, especially during the Advent season, they're confronted with words of judgment and a call to repentance as a precursor to the good news of God's grace. There's all this talk about wrath and judgment and the need to repent. And people are kind of struck with the thought, well, I thought Christianity was supposed to be nice. This is especially true leading up to the days before and to Christmas. But thanks be to God, His Word and the teaching of the church will not allow us to wallow in sentimentality. And that brings us back to the passage we heard from Luke's Gospel about Mary this morning and back to the song that we offered in responsive uh, praise to God, the Magnificat, Mary's song out of Luke chapter 1. Just to remind you of the scene, after saying yes to God and opening her life to be the mother of the Savior, Mary goes to visit her kinswoman, Elizabeth. And following their exchange, after what is happening in, after what is happening in, she, uh, what's happening in Mary's womb really begins to dawn on her after she has spoken with Elizabeth. When you opened your mouth, when you greeted me, Mary, the child within my womb, John the Baptist, leapt for joy. And she says, you know, what, you know, why am I so favored that the mother of our Lord should come and visit me? And I think for Mary, in a way, you know, it's odd that it didn't happen perhaps as much when the angel, angel Gabriel gave the annunciation. But at that moment, the penny sort of drops for Mary. And she bursts forth in that wonderful spirit-inspired song. But the giving of the child and the coming of this baby inspires Mary to sing not a song of sappy sentimentality, chestnuts roasting on an open fire. She never sang that. She sings a song of revolution. This is a revolution she's singing about. This is not a song about sleigh rides or snowmen. These are literally fighting words. These are, or as I would say, usually fighting words. The Blessed Virgin is not meek and mild in this passage. Instead, she sings a song that sounds a lot like the battle songs, the war songs that were sung by other great women in Israel's past, like Deborah. It rings in harmony with the victory song sung by Miriam, the, Moses, uh, the sister of Moses, who sang after after Pharaoh's armies were washed away in the, 
and the rushing of the Red Sea as it came back together. And Miriam took a tambourine and led the women of Israel in praise. And this is what their song was. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider are thrown into the sea. Ha, 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 God beat you up, Pharaoh. (laughs) Sounds like Hannah's militant song when she found out that she was going to have a baby who was going to be judge over Israel. My heart rejoices in the Lord. This is, this is Hannah's song. My heart rejoices in the Lord. and the Lord, my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. These are all fight songs. Mary's song is a song about how God is going to go to war. He's going to go to war with the false powers and pretentious principalities of this fallen world that are in rebellion against God. The Magnificat proclaims that God is about to tear down the bloody and the false idols that we love, that we trust, that we obey, that we worship. God is going to war with our idols. And the shocking thing is that he is going to do it in a way that the cosmic forces, the demonic forces that are hostile to God, could not begin to cope with. Mary praises God for the way that he, first of all, she begins by this, he's noticed me in my humility. He has noticed me in my humility. The devil doesn't know what to do with humility. She rejoices that God is reaching his mighty arm into history again, and he is going to turn everything upside down. And then she sings this. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. These are revolutionary words. And exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. God's just turning everything upside down through the birth of this baby. And in this inspired song, Mary declares that God has has picked sides in human society. God is against, that is, as in the fact that he is not on the side of the movers and shakers of the world, the influential, the academic and cultural elite, the wealthy, the politically powerful, the comfortable, the secure, those are on the list of those who are getting pushed out. He is actively bringing down the mighty and exalting the humble. He is filling the hungry and the rich. He rejects and sends them away. These are revolutionary words. William Temple knew that. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury from 1942 to 44. He's a very influential archbishop. And he warned missionaries, his missionaries, that he was sending to India never to read that phrase, that, that passage, the Magnificat, never read that in public. Because Christians were already suspect in that country, and they were cautioned against reading verses so inflammatory. Now, we need to be clear at this point. It is not because wealth or power or success or influence or intellect are inherently bad. How do I know that? Because those are attributes of God. (laughs) I I don't know if you noticed it, but God's got all the money. (laughs) When we're tithing, I don't care how much you give, you still haven't impressed him. Tithing is an act of worship. It's not that God needs your stuff. 
If he needed stuff, he'd just make some more of it. God is almighty. He has all power. God is successful. All of his plans come to pass. God is influential. He's sovereign over all things. Intellect, he's the only wise God. All of these are attributes of God, so they are not inherently bad. The problem, though, is that we've turned those things into into goals to be desired in and of themselves. They are false gods that and because they have become false gods, that, they, they must be torn down, and they have to be overthrown, and that's what the Magnificat is about. When we make them the center of our lives, we think that money, success, and power, those things really matter, and that's just idolatry. It's idol worship, and I can't help but quote Tim Keller if we're going to talk about idolatry. What a, wrote a great book. I guess it's been over 10 years ago maybe now, Counterfeit Gods, but in that book he says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination, your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what God could only give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. We need to think about that. Uh, I'll just stop here because Jim Cronkey challenged me about this uh, in the, after the first service. He said, are, are grandchildren counted on this? <laughs> and I guess, yeah, grandchildren can be idols. They're easy to be idols. An idol, he goes on to say, has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I will feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know that I have value then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. So Mary's song, her Magnificat, and by the way, that term just comes from the first word uh, in Latin, Magnificat, of the song. Her Magnificat is not a song of cozy sentiment. Sentimentality, you see, allows us the soft comfort of saccharine sweet emotions. It gives us the, feel, the sweet emotional high. And this is what, you know, I, people think you have to worry about consumerism during Christmas time. I'm, that doesn't get me so much. For me, I have to guard against sentimentality at Christmas time because, yeah, I love to sit in my chair in front of my fireplace with my beautifully decorated mantle because I did it. It was done just right. And then there's, there's Ranger, you know, there at my feet, my, my big old German shepherd, and, a, and I got a mug of hot apple cider, and I can just feel all ooey-gooey. <laughs> but that leaves my sin and rebellion comfortably un chastised. And worse than that, 
it leaves our narcissism uncontested. And I, narcissism, is, narcissism is that inordinate love of the self, preoccupation with the self. By the way, I've said this before, but it bears, bears being reminded. People who hate themselves are also narcissists because all they think of is how they hate themselves. They're preoccupied with the self. You can be a narcissist if you love yourself too much. You can be a narcissist if you hate yourself. It's about thinking about yourself, and the world is about you all the time, which, of course, it's not. It's about me. No. <laughs> My narcissism rebels against your narcissism. God is going to judge, and that's what Mary's song is about. And the amazing thing is how that judgment will happen. God chooses his, this is how the judgment of that kind of narcissistic, sentimentality, self-congratulating feelings, this is how it begins. God chooses to enter the womb of the humble Virgin Mary and to inaugurate his time on planet Earth as a helpless child of a peasant girl. That's how the revolution begins. And because of her humble obedience and openness to God, Mary is more important than any other political or religious figure of her era. Era. I don't care. I, 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 I love history. But I got to tell you, mostly except for the fact that he wrote that decree that all the world had to be taxed and go back to their hometown, Caesar Augustus makes no, no difference to my life. Mary does. The most important, powerful figure on the world stage in the time of Jesus' birth was Caesar Augustus. At least that's what the world thought. Actually, it was a nobody of, of, from a village of no, nobodies that nobody even heard of. And she wasn't even a guy, it was a woman. <laughs> that was the most important person that day. Not Herod the Great, not the legions of Rome, not the religious establishment in Jerusalem. No, God is going to do this revolutionary act through Mary's baby, who is going to grow up to be the spectacular, world-renowned carpenter from Nazareth. That's how God's going to do it. William Bennings, who is the father of American shape note singing, he penned these lines. Seek not in courts nor palaces, nor royal curtains draw, but search the stable. See your God extended on the straw. See your God extended on the straw. The Almighty God would take on flesh and be born as a peasant and laid to sleep in a feed trough. And that, my friends, is not cute and cuddly. That is revolutionary. This is God's frontal assault on the devil and all his works. Through the manger of Bethlehem, it is God's assault on the devil and all his works. The false values, the vain pomp and glory of this world, and the sinful desires of the flesh. The coming of this child is God's judgment against the false gods of the culture and the false salvation of material security and physical comfort. The manger of Bethlehem has more in common with the beaches of Normandy than with the sappy presentation on many of our Christmas cards. 
Beloved, if we let sentimentality consume our understanding of Christmas and all that leads up to it, we will no longer be celebrating a Christian holiday. Because the incarnation of God as Mary's baby is not all there is to that story. See, this is one of the ways that the world lets you stay in sentimentality mode. Is it's like, oh, there's a baby. Isn't that sweet? There's nothing more precious than a baby. And that's so cute. They put him in a manger. But that's not where this story ends for us. This story ends with a man stripped naked, nailed to a piece of wood outside the city of Jerusalem on a day that was so horrible that the sun turned black. And then three days later, he triumphed over the powers of sin and death and hell and all the pretentious stuff that put him on that cross was defeated. And he came out in victory. And this Jesus, this Jesus is coming again in power and great glory. And there won't be, nobody's going to be able to make a precious moment's Bible out of that event. (laughs) Sentimentality is not enough to overturn the depth of human sin and its effects. The depth of our brokenness is so great that God himself has to be tortured and nailed to a cross to cure our sickness. And so again, Tim Keller writes, The salvation Jesus achieved came not through strength, but through surrender, service, sacrifice, and death. This is one of the great messages of the Bible. God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. The foolish things to shame the wise. Even things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Of course, he's quoting 1 Corinthians. That's how God does it. So why does this matter to you this morning? Well, it applies to everybody here, me included. I have to say it's very challenging, actually. I want to tell you, though, first of all, if you are the lowly, If you feel humble and small, if you are more like Mary than you are like Caesar, if we see ourselves as ordinary, if we see ourselves maybe as mediocre, maybe we see ourselves as those whose opportunities and life have passed us by and we know we're on the downhill side, I've got good news for you today. You are exactly the kind of person that God always chooses to use and exalt over and over and over again. We think of mighty King David. Y'all, his brothers. I mean, do you remember when Samuel was sent to Jesse's house in Bethlehem to find out, you know, I I go to Jesse's house, God says, I'm going to show you the new king, the one to anoint as uh, king of Israel. And Jesse brings in all of his sons, good-looking boys, strong, strapping young men, and the Lord said, nope, not that one, not that one, not that one. And Jesse, I mean, Samuel turns to Jesse, do you have any more children? <laughs> said, oh, yeah, we got that David kid, but he's out watching the flocks. He, wasn't, he didn't start out as the great King David. He started out as the kid that nobody even thought to bring in to show to the prophet Samuel. Over and over and over again, if that is you, Think about what God can do with you. I want you to know something. Um, This means a lot to me now, especially because 
I, I've hit the time of my life when parts are breaking and won't get fixed. It's like, I got a little torn rotator cup, just n- not much, but a little bit, and basically he said, yeah, that's going to hurt, <laughs> the doctor said. So what are you going to do? Yeah, that's just going to hurt. <laughs> okay, that's going to hurt. It's not over for you. If you're the kid that, if you're the kid that nobody thinks to bring in and show the prophet, it, you're, you're might, you might be the person that God's looking for. On the other hand, many of us in Christ church are on the track to be or have already become, whether we recognize it or not, high achievers and high income earners. As this happens, if we are not careful, if we are not vigilant, the trajectory of our life will be something along these lines. We will move into a neighborhood where most people make at least as much money and probably more than we do. There will be a steady pressure to make sure that you have the trappings that are the same as your colleagues and your socioeconomic bracket. Yes, this happens. I, I will... Uh, um, okay, so... Uh, one of our church planners is, uh, he's on the, we have a methodology for church planning uh, in the Anglican, our little Anglican part of the world right here is that we, we encourage that men who are going to plant churches to marry doctors. And it's, it's working out pretty good. Now, Keith and I didn't get the memo, but, uh, but others did evidently. And so, um, so uh, uh, SJ won't mind me telling you about this. Um, she was, uh, they were pressured. She felt, I mean, verbally pressured by her colleagues. Like, why are you driving a Honda? You could buy a Lexus. You could buy an Acura at least. You know, why are you driving? I mean, there was, there was a conversation along those lines. Why do you live where you live? You, you can live someplace better than that. I mean, there's either implied or spoken pressure to follow your socioeconomic bracket to the next level up. And that's a trajectory. There's the trajectory to make sure that your kids go to the right schools and that you take vacations in the right places and that you have all the right paraphernalia. And little by little, an attitude of entitlement, of pride, will creep into your heart and you will not even know that it is there. And this is how you find out it is there is when somebody treats you some way you don't think you ought to be treated. And you say, how dare they do that to me? And then you realize it's not representative of how most people live anymore. I mean, I live in, you know, glorious Gordon Manor. <laughs> it's still, it's so wonderful, though, compared to what most people live with. So, make it a point to connect in a real way with those of humble estate. How could I do that? Well, maybe you could serve at the food pantry. Maybe you could serve at the Samaritan's Inn. Maybe you could serve with Sudanese refugee community. And God willing, please make it so, maybe you could serve with the new refugees that God would bring for us to care for at Christ Church. The second thing is, and especially if we are... If we're on the uphill side of our careers and we're heading, you know, we're, we, some of us are already gotten where we are and we're settled, but you know you're going to be moving in a few years, you're going to complete your residency, you're going to get out of school or whatever. Make it a point to live in a neighborhood that is one step down from where your peers live. Just do something crazy like that. 
And the third thing would be to practice radical sacrificial giving. Now, if you think me telling you to practice radical sacrificial giving is um, an oblique or manipulative way to to get you to give to this church, then just don't do it. Don't give to this church if that's what you think is going on here. But do give radically and sacrificially to someone else. And do it, and this is how you know that you are giving radically and sacrificially. When it changes, when you give so much, it changes the way you have to live your life. When you you know you have given sacrificially, when it changes the way you live your life. Where you can't go do something that you could do if you had all that money. That's how you can tell. Because generosity is the greatest defense we have against the most powerful idols in our lives. It is the surest thing to thwart that trajectory to become the mighty he has cast down from their thrones and the rich he has sent empty away. To not be that is to be radically generous. Because that's exactly what we celebrate at Christmas. Is a God who is so radically generous that he gave something that changed the way he lived. Wow. That the God of glory came to us and made himself nothing and took on the form of a servant. And being found in the likeness of a human being, he became obedient. Obedient even unto death on a cross. Wherefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess to the glory of God, his Father. That's how God practices revolution. He takes nothing and makes it Lord. That's what we're celebrating here. I love the apple cider I love my trips to Salem Creek. If you don't know it, you don't, you don't know sentimentality at its deepest level. I love it. But that's not what we're celebrating. We're celebrating a revolution. God, complete your revolution among us. And come again quickly, Lord Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.